Uh, Grand Rounds today is the third in the fourth series of our Chad Endocrinology Mini Fellowship, updates on important and common conditions in endocrinology for those of us in general practice to refresh ourselves of and, and have some standard practice. And I, I was mistaken in that this is the first time the, the curriculum director, Nancy Charest, is joining us at the podium. Uh, Clinical Assistant Professor of Pediatric and Section Chief of Pediatric Endocrinology, Dr. Charest is a native of Connecticut. Uh, she traveled to Massachusetts for her undergraduate degree, summa cum laude, at Wheaton College, returned to Connecticut for medical uh, med uh, medicine, medical school and residency training, and then joined the faculty at the Department of Pediatrics at the University of North Carolina after her fellowship there. Spent um, the majority of her career between can, can, uh, North Carolina, excuse me, and then back to Connecticut, the Yale University School of Medicine in Yale New Haven uh, Hospital until we were able to recruit her here in 2011. She is uh, um, a former Phi Beta Kappa and Phi Beta Kappa Book Award, and she wanted me to highlight uh, a current presentation with Carrie Schulmeister, Schulmeister that will be taking place this May at the PAS meeting in Toronto on longitudinal mental health surveillance in transgender patients. Uh, she has led our transgender efforts and has been up here for Grand Rounds when we've had those talks by Norm Spack that she arranged. Um, but it is interesting because there, uh, the last presentation at PAS and APS that uh, Nancy presented was identification of positive regulatory elements in the promoter Candida albicans genes, INT1, some really core <laughs> basic science uh, genetic expression work, and now moving into the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to translational research. But as you pointed out, it's relevant because your genetic expression work was around androgen receptors and the, the role of, 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 of sex hormones, and, and this is some of the work you're doing again. So, so Nancy's going to join us here for the first time. Thanks. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. All right, so um, I want to talk about puberty today. Um, puberty is a profound, dramatic event in the life of a child. Um, it involves the physical transformation from a child, boy or girl, to the body of a man or a woman. Um, it is, involves the development of secondary sex characteristics, the pubertal growth spurt, and the achievement of reproductive function. All of that takes place in about two and a half years. Um, and it is exquisitely orchestrated by hormones, both the peptide hormones of the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, and the sex hormones of the testis, the ovary, and the adrenal gland. Um, I chose this topic today because I think every pediatrician needs to understand normal puberty and to recognize when puberty is not normal. I'm gonna review the basics of puberty and today will be a discussion of precocious puberty. Um, I could come back and talk about delayed puberty, but I couldn't fit that all into today's talk. So I'm gonna start with a case. Um, the parents of a five and eight 12 year old girl 
are concerned because their daughter developed breasts and pubic hair four months ago. On further questioning, they note that she has developed axillary odor and a clear vaginal discharge, but no vaginal bleeding. She's had no exposure to hormone-containing products. On physical exam, she's at the 75th percentile for height and weight. She has a little bit of facial acne, a little bit of axillary hair, tanner three breast development, tanner two pubic hair, and she does not have an enlarged clitoris. This is her growth chart. You can see that she started out um, at age three and a half um, at about the 40th percentile. By age four and a half, she was at the 50th percentile, 60th percentile, and when she presented, she was at the 75th percentile. So this is showing evidence of a pubertal growth spurt much before uh, it would normally uh, take place. So we're going to come back to this case. But what are the concerns of the parents? What are the concerns of the pediatrician? What are my concerns as an endocrinologist when I see this type of child? The parents are mostly concerned about a negative psychological impact associated with their child's early puberty kind of the loss of their childhood and what is this going to mean. Um, I can tell you, I'm not going to talk about this very much. It's, uh, it, there's surprisingly little data to say that boys and girls that go through early puberty have any long-lasting psychological ramifications for going through puberty early. Um, is early puberty going to result in short stature? Um, I'll talk about this uh, a little bit more. And the answer is maybe, not, not uniformly uh, going to be the case. And then I'm going to spend a lot of time um, discussing, is there an underlying medical condition causing her early puberty that should be of concern to the pediatrician and the endocrinologist? <coughs> so here's the objectives of today's talk. What are the normal stages and sequence of, of, of puberty? How do we define precocious puberty? How do we classify the various forms of precocious puberty? How should the PCP evaluate early puberty? And when should the PCP refer to an endocrinologist? So I'm going to review normal puberty. Um, tanner staging, OK? I need to gently remind people that tanner staging is two things in boys and two things in girls. You, you tanner stage pubic hair in both boys and girls, and breasts in girls, and genitals in boys. I can't tell you how many referrals come in that say, uh, boy with who's tanner two, okay? Girl, that's tanner three. Well, if it's just breast development and not pubic hair, or pubic hair and not breast development, or both, those are very different situations, and so you need to be telling you should be looking at the child and understanding the two different things you're looking at and let us know what you're seeing on physical exam. So these are pictures of, of Tanner staging. Um, this is pubic hair in girls. One is no pubic hair. Five is adult pubic hair. I also see notes that say Tanner zero. There is no such thing as Tanner zero. <laughs> I, you know, I think it would have been a good idea, but that's not how Tanner did it. So Tanner 1 is prepubertal. Tanner 2, okay, is hair 
usually straight hair along the labia. Ten or three is when the hair becomes coarser and a little bit curly, and it, it comes up onto the mons. Ten or four is normal type of pubic hair, coarse, dark, curly, um, but it's not yet in an adult configuration. And ten or five is when the hair reaches the medial thigh, and there's kind of a horizontal line across the top of the pubic hair. Same thing in boys. Um, one is no pubic hair. Two is hair. It's very hard to see here, but it's at the base of the phallus. Right here is where pubic hair starts to appear. Three, the hair starts to come up onto the mons. Four is, again, adult-type pubic hair, but not yet reaching the medial thigh or having a line across the top, which is Tanner 5. Um, these are the best pictures I could get of Tanner staging, but you can't really see everything on these slides. Breast development in girl, Tanner 1 is no breast bud at all. Tanner 2 is breast budding um, right here. Tanner 3 is a little bit more than breast budding, and you have an actual mound of tissue that extends past the areola. <laughs> Tanner 4 is a specific stage where the areola and the papilla form a secondary mound over the breast. And then by Tanner 5, the areola has receded again, and you get a smooth contour of the breast with the uh, areola and the nipple. Um, a small Tanner 5 can look like Tanner 3. So unless you've seen somebody go through Tanner 4, you may not be able to say whether it's a 3 or a 5. I find genital staging in boys very difficult. Um, and that's because there's no real hallmark at any particular stage. One is no, is pre, whoops. One is prepubertal development. Um, prepubertal size penis, uh, prepubertal uh, testes and, and scrotum. Two, you get thinning of the scrotum um, and you get a little bit of increase in length of the penis. Three is a continuation of growth of the testis and the genitals. The penis is still growing predominantly in length. In four, you get increase in the breadth of the penis uh, and continued growth. And here is Tanner stage five. So I think it's clear to me when I see one in five, <laughs> I, think I, I think I know two, but, change, but going from three, is it a three or a four, or is it a four or a five? I, I find that somewhat difficult. So I'm not going to fault anybody if they can't do that either. Um, so any resident that's been through endocrinology knows about the Prater beads, okay? These are wooden beads that are testicular volume. And so the endocrinologist, to determine whether a boy is in puberty, will isolate the testis, you know, kind of pull back the scrotum, palpate the testis, and then match it up with a size um, on these beads. And if the size is in blue, okay, which is one, two, and three mils, very, very good chance the child is not in puberty. And when you reach four mils, very high chance that the child has started puberty. This is a much more reliable piece of information than trying to do genital staging um, 
And since all of you are probably not going to be carrying around beads, um, it's important to, to realize that the four mil testis is exactly one inch in diameter, in its longest diameter. So that if you don't have beads, but are you wondering, is this kid in early puberty or is this 15-year-old boy showing any signs of puberty yet? You can measure that testis in its longest diameter. And if it's reached one mil, you can be reassured in a kid with a delayed puberty or concerned in the little boy um, with uh, possible precocious puberty. Now, I apologize. This is really a busy slide, but I just want to make a couple of points. This is about the timing of puberty and the relationship of the different events in puberty to each other. So girls are at the top, and you can see that breast development is really the first thing that you see in a girl. So Tanner 2 breast development here. Pubic hair happens about six months, four to six months later. Here's Tanner 2 pubic hair. You can see the pubertal growth spurt is occurring at about Tanner 3, maybe three and a half. And then menarche is occurring at breast stage four and well after the peak growth velocity. In boys, pretty, a very different situation as far as growth. The first thing you see, this is probably not, this is scrotal thinning that they're talking about that you see first, but typically testicular enlargement happens first, followed by genital um, growth, pubic hair development, and the pubertal growth spurt is, look at this, is at Tanner stage five, a very late pubertal growth spurt uh, for boys. And so there's about a two-year difference in the pubertal growth spurts in girls and boys. And you can ask any boy in middle school that they feel this, uh, because a lot of the girls are very, very much taller than themselves. OK, so we're going to talk a little endocrinology here. This is the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, OK? You probably, I'm hoping that this is a review for you, that the hypothalamus makes gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which stimulates the pituitary gland to make gonadotropins, FSH and LH. In the testis, those gonadotropins stimulate the secretion of testosterone, which gives you the secondary sex characteristics, penile growth, facial hair, muscle growth, spermatogenesis, um, and in the girls, those same gonadotropins stimulate the ovaries to make estrogen, progesterone, and you get breast development, uterine growth, um, ovulation, and menses. Now, what happens to trigger puberty in this system? Well, we do know that GnRH has to be secreted in a pulsatile fashion. So before puberty, there's essentially no peaks of gonadotropin-releasing hormone. As puberty is initiated, there's a pulse generator in the hypothalamus, and you start getting peaks of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, and the frequency and the amplitude of the peaks continue to increase as you go through puberty. 
there's a lot of research trying to understand what starts this process. And it appears to be a combination of stimulatory events and release of inhibitory um, pathways. And I don't think anybody really understands if there is such a thing as one pivotal thing that happens in the hypothalamus. One of the prime candidates is something called kispeptin, which is a neuropeptide um, that appears to be involved in the initiation of these pulses. But that then begs the question, what turns on kispeptin to turn on the pulse generator? And we don't really know the answer to that. Um, leptin seems to have some uh, influence on the uh, pulsatility of GnRH. Um, patients who are leptin deficient don't go, go through puberty. Um, we think maybe the boys, predominantly girls, who are obese and have higher levels of leptin, they tend to go through puberty earlier. Is that one of the reasons? Is because the leptin is elevated? We're not really sure. Now, in a related but timing-related way, the adrenal glands turn on at about the same time as the testes and the ovaries. And you have in the hypothalamus something called cortitropin-releasing factor, which stimulates the pituitary gland to make ACTH, which stimulates the uh, portion of the adrenal gland responsible for these mildly androgenic hormones in the adrenal gland, DHEA, DHEAS, androstenedione, and these hormones are responsible for pubic hair, axillary hair, axillary odor, and acne. And again, we don't really still understand what triggers adrenarche. We do know that there's a change in the responsiveness of the adrenal gland to ACTH. In the prepubertal child, you mostly get a cortisol response and very little production of the adrenal androgens. And then as adrenarche begins, the cortisol response to ACTH stays about the same, but the zona reticularis, which is where these adrenal uh, androgens are made, starts to respond to ACTH and make those hormones. There's a lot of speculation on whether there's another stimulating factor, possibly in the pituitary gland, that stimulates the adrenal cortex. Um, there's a couple of candidates, but there's really no um, overwhelming um, evidence that this even exists. So what is the definition of precocious puberty? Okay. For right now, in the United States, signs of puberty in a girl before eight years of age. That's based on an average age of breast development in Caucasian girls of about 10 and a half, and, two, and this one standard deviation is a year. So eight years of age is about two and a half standard deviations um, below the mean uh, average for, for puberty. The same thing for boys, the average age for testicular enlargement is 11 and a half. So puberty in a boy before nine years of age is considered precocious. There's data for African-American girls and boys, but particularly girls, 
that they may go through puberty earlier. And so as endocrinologists, we kind of use a cutoff of seven for African-American girls and don't get too concerned about the African-American girl between seven and eight. There's other data that says maybe girls, all girls should be considered uh, normal if puberty happens after seven and in boys, maybe eight and a half, but these are still the standards that we're using. All right, <clears throat> so classification of precocious puberty. Three different categories. One is central precocity. That means it's kind of like typical puberty where the gonadotropins are regulating the pubertal process. Second is what's called peripheral precocity, which is gonadotropin independent. The ovaries are doing, making estrogen, the testes are making testosterone, or the adrenal glands are making their hormones, and it's not under the regulation of the pituitary gland. Um, it also includes exposure to exogenous um, steroids that would not be regulated at all by, by the pituitary gland. And then probably something you see more often than the first two categories are these variations of pubertal development, which includes premature thelarchy and isolated premature adrenarchy, which I'm going to touch upon. So we're first going to talk about central precocious puberty. Okay, so again, just to remind you, this is the same mechanism where you're going to get stimulation of the pituitary gland by GnRH, production of gonadotropins, and then production of testosterone and estrogen. The characteristics of central precocity are the production of sex steroids are regulated by the hypothalamus and the pituitary. The puberty is always isosexual, meaning it's the, the, the secondary sex characteristics you expect for that sex. So if you see clitoromegaly in a girl, that's not going to be regulated by the pituitary gland. That's going to be a type of peripheral precocity. Um, the sequence of pubertal milestones is similar to normal puberty. Boys start with testicular enlargement. Girls start with breast development. If a girl presents and she's got vaginal bleeding and nothing else, very unlikely to be central puberty. The pace of progression can be similar to normal puberty, however, it can be rapidly progressive or it can kind of wax and wane and never really require any intervention. So central precocious puberty is divided into idiopathic and disorders of the CNS. And I like this because this really tells you who you're likely to see in your practice. Okay, these are all cases of central precocious puberty. Girls are in pink, boys are in blue. <laughs> I know, I, I was gonna pick other colors, but I couldn't do it. 80% <laughs> um, of central precocity is girls who have idiopathic precocity. Okay, so girls that the timing is altered for reasons that we don't understand. 10% of girls will end up having some type of CNS lesion. Um, and the boy with central precocity is pretty rare. It only makes up 10% um, of the precocious, central precocious kids. And this is pretty worrisome. 
more than half in most series say that you're going to find a CNS lesion. So idiopathic central precocity in a boy is, is not really at the top of your, top of your list. So what are the CNS disorders that we see? We're always worried about CNS tumors. Hamartomas are kind of at the, the top of the list, but any type of tumor can cause precocious puberty. Hydrocephalus, perinatal asphyxia, meningitis, encephalitis, cranial irradiation, those are all things that you usually know they have um, before they pre uh, present with precocity. And a lot of those things, we think there's some kind of interference with the inhibition of, of puberty, which allows them uh, to uh, exhibit precocious puberty. So we're going to go back to, to case one. And so again, this is a 5 and 8, 12-year-old girl. She's got both breasts and pubic hair. Um, she doesn't have um, any history of exposure to hormone-containing products. And on physical exam, she's got Tanner 3 breasts, Tanner 2 pubic hair. So the positive, I don't know if you've seen the endocrine notes that say a positive estrogen effect on the vaginal mucosa. So estrogen causes differentiation of the vaginal mucosa, and it turns from a dark, shiny pink to a dull, lighter pink. And so sometimes, particularly in obese girls, I, don't, I mean, I have probably just as much trouble as you do determining whether they have breast development or whether it's all adipose tissue. One of the things you can depend on is to look at the vaginal mucosa. If it's still that shiny, red-looking mucosa, then it's unlikely um, that you're looking at real breast development. The girl's bone age is eight, and she's not even six years of age. So here's her same growth chart, and oops, this is her bone age. Okay, this little brown square is her bone age. So when you correct her height for her bone age of 8, instead of being at the 75th percentile, she's at the 3rd percentile. Okay, so that tells you something about how the sex hormones, estrogen, is advancing their, their bone age, okay? And even though they look like they're getting taller, they're going to end up being much shorter. And that's one of the reasons we will treat somebody with precocious puberty is try to preserve their stature. This girl's height prediction has already gone down to uh, five feet. Um, and you can see that her mid-parental height says she should be about five feet. Five, four. So this early puberty is already impacting her stature. So when we see a child like this, we will get baseline gonadotropins. It's ideal to get them first thing in the morning. And if you have an LH that's greater than 0.3, and you can say that that girl has central precocity. But typically, the random gonadotropins will not necessarily be helpful. And so we do a GnRH stimulation test. We actually use luprolide um, to stimulate the, the ovaries or the testes, or the pituitary, and then the ovaries and the testes. And you can get an LH of greater than 4 or 5. 
is considered indicative of a pubertal response to GnRH. And so this girl at 60 minutes had an eight saying, yes, she has central precocity. Um, she had a brain MRI because we have to make sure she doesn't have a CNS lesion and it was normal. And we would call this idiopathic central precocious puberty. The treatment, I'm not gonna go a lot into treatment today. The treatment is we use Depoluprolide, okay, this is a every three month injection, and it's a long acting analog of GnRH. And what they discovered is if you expose the pituitary gland to constant levels of GnRH, you wipe out the pulses and you get a decrease in FSH and LH down to prepubertal levels and you turn off estrogen and testosterone totally. It is a very safe medication um, and it's totally reversible. So we use this a lot in idiopathic uh, precocious puberty um, or even centrally mute, uh, mediated precocious puberty. I would say the, the big negative is the expense. Okay, the shots are up to $10,000 an injection. Um, and so if, you, if you're insured, insurance is really good about paying for this, fortunately, because nobody can, can pay for this out of pocket. But of course, with the high deductibles and high co-pays, this is sometimes out of the realm of what, what a, a family can afford. There is a implant uh, called Histralin, which acts exactly the same way as Luprolide, and it turns off the secretion of LH and FSH in the pituitary gland we used to think it lasted 12 months. We now have data that it lasts 24 months. Um, that costs about $26,000. Um, and unfortunately, the reimbursement from Medicaid in the state of New Hampshire for that $26,000, we get about 600. So we are not offering this um, to our patients. Um, and so essentially all of our patients at this point in time are getting the the depot luprolide. Ah, ah, what I also wanted to mention the thing about stature. Okay, most of the data says that if you treat a girl before age six, you will most likely improve their height prediction. The girls that get treated at age seven to eight the impact on their height may be minimal. So when we're talking to parents about treatment, if the girl is you know, seven and two twelfths, we can say, well, we're going to try to improve their height prediction, but we don't know if that's really going to happen. And as you probably realize, there's a lot of inaccuracy of height prediction. So sometimes you think you've done something and maybe you haven't, um, but we at least, usually offer it to patients um, that are under eight if they're a girl or under nine if they're a boy. Chronologic age. Chron the data's on chronologic age. Uh, most of those kids are going to have bone ages that are, you know, eight, nine, ten. Um, all right, so the next category is peripheral precocity, meaning the pu puberty is not driven by the hypothalamus or the pituitary gland. 
And this is production of sex steroids that's not under the regulation of the hypothalamus or the pituitary. It can be isosexual or contrasexual, meaning you can get virilization in females or feminization in boys. The sequence of the puberty, pubertal milestones may be different from normal puberty. Girls can present with vaginal bleeding. Boys may have you know, an enlarged phallus, um, but no testicular enlargement or possibly asymmetric testes. So it's important to measure testicular size. So one thing I didn't mention, and I, I think this is an important point, so I made a separate slide. In boys, the hypothalamus makes GnRH, stimulating the pituitary to make LH and FSH. LH is predominantly responsible for the production of testosterone. It is primi primarily FSH that causes testicular enlargement, not testosterone itself. Okay, so if you see somebody with enlarged genitalia, so they've probably been exposed to testosterone, but their testes are not enlarged, okay, that's worrisome, okay, because this is not central precocity, okay, this is some type of peripheral uh, precocity. So testicular enlargement depends on the pituitary gland. It is not a function of making testosterone, although testosterone might get you a little bit of testicular enlargement. So how do you get peripheral precocious puberty? In boys, there's lytic cell tumors. There are HCG-secreting germ cell tumors, which can be anywhere, the, the testis, the brain, the liver. Um, there's something very rare called familial male-limited precocious puberty. It's also called testotoxicosis. And so... So it is actually an, a genetic mutation in the LH receptor. So you get constitutive activation of the LH receptor causing unregulated production of testosterone. Endocrinologists love this. I've seen it once um, in, in my career, um, but it, it does happen. Um, girls, you worry about ovarian tumors, primarily granulosa cell tumors, and simple ovarian cysts can get very large, secrete estrogen, you can get some breast development. As the cyst in, involutes, you can have vaginal bleeding. And then sometimes by the time we do the pelvic ultrasound, there's nothing to see. But if it, if it happens a couple of times, usually we can catch an ovarian cyst. So in boys and girls who have evidence of peripheral precocity, think about exposure to hormones. Androgel is the topical testosterone gel that men take for testosterone deficiency. There's reported cases of, you know, boys and girls with pubic hair and acne because their dads were taking androgel and they were not being careful in washing their hands or not getting on towels in the bathroom. So it is something that men are told to really keep away from girls and women. And I actually had a four-year-old girl who was popping her mother's um, oral contraceptives um, and um, had uh, significant uh, breast development. What's not up here is um, in 2007, there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine about the effects of tea tree extract and lavender extract causing prepubertal gynecomastia in boys. 
and they were in champ. The, the extracts were there was three boys. They had they were getting shampoos or lotions that had one or the other of these, and they actually took those extracts and put them in an in vitro system and showed that they both of those extracts had estrogenic effects and anti-testosterone effects. And just hot off the press from the Endocrine Society on Monday, the same authors that uh, performed that study in 2007 have isolated eight of the compounds in those essential oils, four of which are in both of those, and found that they could find which ones specifically were responsible for the estrogen and anti uh, androgen activity in those extracts. And what they are concerned about is some of those same extracts, uh, same compounds, are in other essential oils, which are not regulated at all um, by, by the FDA. So when I'm taking a history, um, I certainly ask about lotions and shampoos and, and, and whether everybody likes tea tree oil. It sounds so natural. Um, but, you know, it is something for um, children to stay away from. Um, other things that both boys and girls can get are adrenal tumors, feminizing adrenal tumors, really rare. Virilizing tumors are, are usually what you see. Then there are the whole set of genetic mutations in the pathway in the adrenal glands that give you virilizing forms of congenital adrenal hyperplasia where you can get precocity in boys and you can get virilization in girls. And then there's something called McCune-Albright syndrome, which affects girls more than boys. And you get, um, it's a genetic, somatic genetic mutation where you get um, activation of the G subunit of peptide receptors. You can get precoce, precocious puberty. You can get uh, autonomous function of the adrenal glands, autonomous function of the thyroid. Um, these uh, boys and girls have large cafe au lait spots and have a bone disorder called fibrous dysplasia. I've seen maybe three girls um, with that disorder. So here's case two. A father brings his six and five twelfths year old son for evaluation of pubic and axillary hair, which developed five months ago. The uh, adult axillary odor was noted a year ago. He's had no exposure to hormone-containing products. So he's above the 97th percentile in height and weight. He's got some acne, uh, axillary hair, tanner three, pubic hair, Genital development is, is up there, okay, Tanner 3, but his testes are small, okay, they're only 2 mils. Is this central precocity? No, okay, this is peripheral precocity. And look at this, his bone age is 10 and a half, and he's only 6 and a half. So somebody missed the boat here. Um, this is extremely high growth velocity going from below the 50th percentile to above the 97th percentile and uh, in the matter of four years. And here's his bone age. He looks like, and he loves the fact that he's taller than everybody in his class, but he is at risk for very short stature.
So we are concerned here about types of peripheral precocity. One of the, the things would be an adrenal tumor or uh, adrenal hyperplasia. And so his DHEAS is uh, at age six and a half, is like a 10 or five uh, individual. His testosterone, hmm, not crazy high, but just above the, the prepubertal range. And his 17-hydroxyprogesterone, which is the hallmark of the most common virilizing form of adrenal hyperplasia, is up at the 10 or 5 level, and, and that's significant. So we do an ACTH stimulation test. We use synthetic ACTH, and we measure all of the adrenal precursors, but I'm showing you the 17-hydroxyprogesterone at zero minutes, slightly elevated for age, 60 minutes, 4,000, that's not normal, okay? That's bringing out the genetic defect, which leads to overproduction of adrenal androgens uh, and causes what you see on this kid's physical exam. So this is 21 hydroxylase deficiency, and we treat him. So he has simple virilizing adrenal hyperplasia. Um, he doesn't have trouble making uh, cortisol, but he has overproduction of um, adrenal androgens. And we treat him with daily hydrocortisone, which suppresses his ACTH and brings down those adrenal androgens, prevents further development of puberty and further advancement in his bone age. All right, we're going to talk about variations of pubertal development, benign premature thelarchy and... Uh, adrenarchy. So here's isolated breast development in, in a girl before age eight. Again, the cutoff would be seven for an African-American girl. It can be unilateral or bilateral. The parents always think there's a breast tumor, okay? But no, it can be one-sided and that's not worrisome. There has to be absence of other secondary sex characteristics. So you can't have breast development in adult axillary odor and call that benign premature adrenarchy. Normal linear growth and normal bone age. If the kid's crossing percentiles, that's not premature thelarchy. There's two peaks between zero and two years of age and six and eight years of age. These kids need to be watched because 15 to 20% of them can pro progress to precocious puberty. So I believe, most endocrinologists believe that isolated thelarchy can be followed by the PCP if there's no other signs of puberty and there's a normal growth velocity. That doesn't mean you see them back in a year. You know, you're gonna see them back in four or six months and see what's going on. And then premature adrenarchy is isolated pubic hair or axillary hair before eight in girls or nine in boys. And again, African-American girls, seven. Um, they can also have axillary odor and acne. There's a higher incidence in girls, five to one, African-American girls and obese girls. They have a high normal growth velocity and the bone age can be up to one to two years advanced and that's still consistent with premature adrenarchy. Uh, we think that boys and girls with premature adrenarchy can be followed by a PCP if they're over two. The girls have no signs of virilization, no clitoromegaly. Boys have no increase in genital development. 
and they have normal growth velocity and a bone age that's less than two years advanced. So this is a case of uh, premature adrenarche, a six and a half year old girl. She has pubic hair. She has adult axillary odor. She's had no exposure to hormones. She's got Tanner one breast, Tanner two pubic hair, no clitoromegaly, a bone age that's within two years of her chronologic age. This is very typical. This is the weight chart, okay? So, so these are usually obese girls, not always, but that present with premature adrenarche. And here's her growth chart, okay? She's at the top of the curve, but she's not really showing a growth spurt, okay? She's not crossing percentiles. And there's her somewhat mildly um, elevated bone age. I do not believe that that person needs to be sent to endocrinology um, unless there's specific questions. And obviously, what we would suggest here is uh, possibly weight management, but no other intervention. So what do you need to be thinking about when you see a kid with early puberty? When did the breast development, vaginal discharge, pubic hair, axillary hair, odor, acne, when did they appear? How quickly, according to the parents, did this uh, development occur? Has there been exposure to hormone-containing products, products, associated symptoms, thinking about CNS tumors or gonadal tumors, headaches, vision changes, abdominal pain, family history? If the mother had menarche you know, at age nine and the girl is, seems to be following suit, that may not be worrisome. You want to get a height, weight, and a growth velocity, okay? Tanner staging in the female, Tanner staging in the male, other signs of secondary sex characteristic, fundoscopic changes, you know, abdominal mass, cafe au lait spots, bone age, okay? And labs, maybe not, okay? You know, that's very odd for an endocrinologist to say, because that's what we do is measure hormones. But I would ra really rather you focus on the physical exam and the growth chart and the bone age to decide whether this is worrisome and needs to go see an endocrinologist. Part of the problem with labs is that LH, FSH, testosterone, and estradiol in your typical community hospital, even the lab here, not good at differentiating really early puberty. So we send all of those hormone levels to esoterics, although Mayo has a pretty good, uh, has pretty good assays as well. So when a community hospital sends me back an LH that says less than one, and I want to know if it's under 0.3, that's really not helpful information. Um, I don't, we don't, unless there's something unusual about the isolated adrenarche, um, I don't even suggest measuring DHEAS or 17-hydroxyprogesterone. So this is a summary. All girls under age with both breast and pubic hair development need evaluation by an endocrinologist. In girls, it's most likely idiopathic, but doesn't mean that we wouldn't treat them. All boys under particular enlargement need evaluation. They're very likely to have a CNS lesion. Boys and girls with any signs of puberty and accelerated growth need to be referred to endocrinology. That growth chart is pivotal in deciding whether somebody needs to see an endocrinologist. Girls with premature thelarchy can be followed by the PCP. Boys and girls over age two 
with premature adrenarche can also be followed by the PCP. And if you have questions, we have e-consults, and these are our very hardworking, knowledgeable pediatric endocrinologists in Manchester who you've probably never met, Dr. Peter Clemens, Dr. Emily Friedman. They answer all the uh, e-consults, and they would be happy to answer a question about puberty. Thank you. Yeah, I, I don't, that's not typically a complaint um, at, at all. I've had a couple of kids with boys with virilizing adrenal hyperplasia who seem to be more than typically aggressive, but in general, no. Um, hi, you mentioned several times like that they had no known hormonal exposures, and I think you probably have a list of things that you screen through, but um, are there any specific ones that like we wouldn't think of? I'm a primary pediatrician um, that like we should be asking about. Like you mentioned the tea tree oil. We think about, um, I don't know, just different hormone, like things that change how your hormones get regulated. Yeah, you know, there's a whole body of literature on endocrine disruptors in, in the environment, but I would say those are all epidemiologic studies, and it's very hard to say, well, are there phthalates in the, you know, drinking glasses that your child is using? I mean, it's not from a practical standpoint. That's why I asked, do you have any, like, soy. List, yeah. Soy, okay, so a little girl with premature thelarchy, if she's exposed to lots and lots of dietary soy, I tell them to stop doing that. I ask about tea tree. I ask about lavender. Um, there are, there are estrogen-containing creams that might be in the household, um, but, you know, I don't go into all the plastic additives and things because I'm not really sure on an individual basis that that's making a difference. What about the, the putative estrogens in like chicken breasts in, in meat products. Is that causing a problem at all? Well, I don't think there are anymore. Okay. Um, there was a study in, there was an outbreak of premature thelarchy in Puerto Rico, and they were implicating the estrogen that was being given to chickens. But my understanding is that's been kind of poo-pooed and that maybe that wasn't the case at all. So not that we, yeah, it's just not an issue right now. Comment a little bit on normal growth velocity and measurements. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, Dr. Friedman is going to be talking about growth, but I can tell you that if you ever look at a, a child's growth curve, the scatter in the high points can be just god awful. And so to try to say whether somebody's crossing percentiles upwards or downwards, can be just impossible. So, you know, you really should have uh, all of the MAs or LNAs that are measuring your kids, you know, do it with the correct technique, do it in the same way. Um, you know, we don't particularly have a 
you know, one of the, the fall, fall downs up here is we don't have, for somebody in a wheelchair or whatever, we have a terrible way of measuring uh, a recumbent person and we're trying to change that and we're ordering something that's much more um, accurate and helpful. But yeah, I'm telling you that it is important and pivotal to decide whether somebody has an accelerated growth velocity. I didn't have time to show you velocity curves, but they can be really helpful. But if you've got horrible height measurements, you know, you're not going to be able to make that assessment. So it's really, really important to make sure that the people who are measuring your patients are doing it in the, the most accurate way possible. In endocrinology, when we have somebody who's on growth hormone or we're following them for their growth, the endocrinologist will do all the measurements. Um, but I don't think that's necessary in primary care. Um, really quickly about using the Lupron in conjunction with growth hormone, and do you see benefit? So, yes. Getting insurance to pay for it is a problem. So, so in, in these kids with very compromised stature, you put them on Lupron. What you hope is that estrogen re is responsible for the advancement of the bone age in puberty and in boys and girls. So when you put somebody on Lupron, you lower their estrogen levels, you hopefully slow down their bone age advancement and allow them to grow for a longer period of time and improve their, short, their, their eventual stature. If one of the problems with Lupron is that fairly late into therapy, the growth velocity can slow down. And then you're kind of, okay, you've slowed down the bone age, but you've also slowed down the growth rate. That's a time when I try to get uh, growth hormone for those individuals. But of course, you know, uh, growth hormone is about $10,000 a year. And, and most insurance companies are not going to pay for that. They'll pay for the Lupron, but not the growth hormone. But I do think it's a useful um, added therapy. You're prime the pump with some key questions from endocrinology. So <laughs> that was that was high level, but really valuable and important. So next month it is growth. May. May it's growth. But yep. Thank you, Nancy, for coming out. Thank you.